0: Hello and welcome to Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. As we look forward to a new semester, welcome back to our new season of our podcast and we've got many great interviews coming up including part two of Bruno Sylvester's interview with Alvaro Siza, um, interviews with Ros Barr, Melinda Patharaja AOC and Hermanson Hiller Larson, among many others. In this episode, I'm joined by Nana Biamou Fasu, who's a great member of the Kingston team. She teaches in second year, running a unit there with Bushra Mohammed, and she's also an architect working in practice in London. And Nana and I interview uh, Shelley McNamara and Yvonne Farrell of Grafton Architects. Grafton Architects, as we know, are this year's uh, Pritzker Laureates, and it's a really unusual one, isn't it? Because they're a practice which is globally renowned for the quality of their work, but interestingly have kind of escaped some of the more obvious trappings of architecture stardom. I mean, what I mean here is multiple monographs. There isn't a monograph about Grafton. They've never featured in Croquis or any special edition of magazines such as that. And they've gathered their reputation through the quality of their work. Firstly, by making work at schools and small civic structures in Ireland, then catching international attention, winning the invited competition for the Bocconi University in Milan and growing from there um, with notable buildings in Toulouse, in Lima, recently completed in Paris and in Kingston, our own townhouse project. In this interview, we talk about their development as architects, from the feeling of being a young architect, finding out the mess of building and being both fearful of and enraptured by those processes and then on into sensibilities and thoughts that they have about the subject over their many years of experience in both teaching and making remarkable buildings. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. So, without further ado, on with the interview. Thank you so much. So thanks a million for joining us at the Kingston School of Art and welcome to the Register podcast. Well, because I knew Yvonne, I knew you in second year, where you ran second year when I was a student and Shelley, obviously, in fifth in final year. But what we never really found out is how you guys met. We knew you'd both met in UCD and we knew you were part of a group of tutors that were teaching us, but we didn't really know your story. Were the two of you in the same year? How did you start?
1: Yeah, yeah uh, four of the five initial Grafton architects were in the same year, which was Yvonne, myself, Shay Cleary and Tony Murphy. And then the fifth Grafton uh, architect was uh, Frank Hall, who actually, I don't think he completed his studies ever. He went off to work in Seville. We ended up living across the road from him and that's how we met him. And so we uh, started 1977-78. Uh, I actually don't know which which year it was.
2: But I think there's a, there's a kind of a stage before that Andrew to your uh, answering your question. We came to University College Dublin uh, after uh, the, the kind of uh, the, the dust had settled after big changes that happened. There had been a, a, a professor of architecture who, uh, if you like, continued the conservative uh, uh, training. And then the kind of debris after 1968 and people changing and students voicing their opinion. uh, We came in and then uh, after that, and there was a new school of architecture, if you like, or a newly structured uh, one, where uh, there was also a a kind of... um, there were two layers. One was a flying circus of kind of Ed Jones and Chris Cross and and young uh, uh, intellectual uh, uh, and practicing architects who kind of came in like the the uh, the the, uh, the Rolling Stones uh, into into the school. And then we also had very uh, very good uh, local teachers as well. Uh, and in terms, uh, so our education was was really. Very uh, uh, fruitful, and uh, but also we made friends and colleagues. And Shelley and I were in the same year. And uh, when the kind of interesting thing, I suppose, about youth is that you also apprentice yourself to to certain kinds of architects. So we weren't really our, apprenticing ourselves to Mies, nice. We were more attracted to to the work of Le Corbusier because it was much more. Uh, um, uh, expressive. And, and we had a kind of a nickname, the four of us, Shelley, myself, and uh, Shay Cleary and Tony Murphy were known as the kind of Corb kind of squad, you know, that everything was kind of referred to the work of uh, uh, Le Cousier, uh, at the time. But, uh, but also then in terms of uh, when we came back, we worked in London after we qualified, uh, the generosity of somebody like Cahal uh, uh, O'Neill, uh, uh, helping us find, uh, our, our, you know, that the kind of places that you could you could work. What before you uh, or have a, a room somewhere as you as you kind of set up. People were very generous, and then we began uh, teaching very early. We we started teaching, uh, I think, a year or two after we we came back. I think about a year after we came back, or even less. And teaching has always been uh, part of our uh, architectural. Um, lives, building and teaching, uh,
0: twinned. You know, a lot of schools, they kind of try and own their graduates in a way. Um, You know, we produced this practice, this practice, etc. And of course, the first the first kind of incubation unit of any architect is their own biography before the school, but then their classmates, you know, so that, I mean, I've known amazing architects come out of schools where there was no good teachers and vice versa. And there's something about that class, that dynamic, that's very interesting. And then I think where the school can take pride is that that, that you're talking about now, Vaughan, which is that it becomes an incubator for practice.
1: Yeah, we we often say that um, it's like we had a conversation over a period of 25 years or something with different generations of of architects, 25 or more. I can't remember how many years we were teaching in UCD, 198 seventy eight seventy nine to two thousand and something thirty years and and it is a it is a process of osmosis and it is very enriching especially during recessions and when you're worn down with the the terror of of making buildings and especially a lot of small work and you have you can have conversations with people and then you can also to research where you come out of your own sometimes very small claustrophobic world and move into another world of, uh, of investigation and, uh, and exploration. And that's always been very enriching. But I, I do, we didn't realize that at the time, but these conversations, you know, with Shane Blackham and John R. and um, all of those people and uh, Don Toomey and Paul Keogh, you know, there was a whole... Um, all of Group 91, for instance, were teaching and then there's Next Generations and then there's that thing of people with whom you, people you taught joining your office and becoming very important in the office. So it's like an ongoing um, development of some kind of culture. And and I think like history that happened, uh, like history creeps up on you. It happened almost unknown to us that there was something developing which then started to to come out once people got some kind of uh opportunity Uh, and i think that's still ongoing with with you and your generation and people younger than you you know it's it's going on uh it's continuing and i think the school's are hugely important in in that that generosity of of, of like you with nana for instance uh, i mean a young architect is and it's one of the wonderful things about teaching is a first year can make a project that you wish you'd made yourself because imagination isn't isn't just related imagination isn't dependent on experience it's uh, it's there and then experience is something that props it up uh, and and supports it and that thing of um, teaching is is an ongoing discovery of of uh, of that and um, the courage of students and the the naivety in the best sense of the word uh, just the openness of, of, of wading into this world of architecture and Becoming immersed in it and, and actually working with it. So it, 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 is, it, is, uh, it, is, it is a fantastic complementary um, process, the, the teaching and the development of an architectural country in a country and the development of the individuals on both sides.
2: I think there's a, another ingredient too, so just a, a, a small piece to insert in that as well, is that when we won the Bocconi competition and we had to uh, expand from eight architects to maybe 20, that that working with uh, people then who were continuing that conversation or who understood the direction that a, a project might go really, really was uh, very important uh, in the development of the project. But I think there is another ingredient. So that there's there's the the learning, there's the there's the experience, there's there's teaching, and I think from the very beginning of, of the practice that that we were always interested in that issue of trying to communicate architecture beyond the the conversations between architects, and that we were always involved in exhibitions. We were involved in a sense of Ireland, which was going to be put on when uh, all the various arts, from film to poetry, writing were being represented in London in the late 80s but architecture was not being included and we just kind of felt that was really important this was unbelievable that that would be the case so can we then organised that architecture would be part of the exhibition in London kind of parallel uh, to, to, the, to the other arts and disciplines and other exhibitions small ones that we've always been involved and it is interesting then one thing does lead to another and the, the, if you like, the Venice Biennale uh, two years ago was was like a, a very, very, very big exhibition in the continuity of our belief that as a profession, we don't make it easy for non-specialists or non-architects to understand us. And I think that's very deep in the way we think that, that it, because architecture is not a rarefied art and that it affects everybody on the globe. That, that there is a responsibility within our discipline to try and uh, reduce the the uh, uh, the membrane of understanding between the general public. Uh, so the sense of our, a sense of it's interesting sensing spaces in the in the uh, in the Royal Academy a number of years ago as well. That was about taking, if you like, a, a, we were invited to participate, and we took the the. Uh, just took light, the beautiful rooms in the Royal Academy in London and tried to emphasize darkness and light two kind of very basic elements and made it comfortable for people to, just for a moment to stop and think of those two things, brightness and darkness. And it's, I I think that there are lots of strains and that, uh, that, that one thing does lead to another and sometimes then other opportunities fold in. And things get more and more emphasized, uh, depending on continuous passion and uh, continuous belief in, in architecture has been something that affects all of society.
3: Um, I guess linked to the teaching and your very early, your early start of your careers, I want to talk a bit about your first projects, because often there's a kind of, um, you, you go through your training and you build up all these ideas and there's a kind of, well, I'm finding there's a kind of bursting energy to get all these things out into some sort of built form. And so you come with all these things that you've been thinking about through kind of five to seven years of education. And how do you then turn those ideas into the building? And how, the, how, how does the build, what's the relationship between an architect's first project, their own training, and the kind of continuing conversation that can span kind of decades of work?
1: Mm. Mm. <laughs> well, my experience was very crude and very awkward uh because I knew nothing um and uh I think younger architects are much better equipped now mm. uh because of um you know years out and access to offices and summertime and all of that kind of thing um I mean, my first project was a conversion of a small gate lodge for the local doctor in Liston Varna, in the west of Ireland, where I come from. And I was so terrified that I used to go out on a Sunday evening to look at the, the construction because I didn't know what anything was. And I didn't want the builder to know that I didn't know what anything was. I mean, I hardly knew what a DPC was or where it went and should it go up or down or in or out. And it was quite terrifying, actually because you were so alone, and, um, and then there, because building, it's really exciting, but it's, it's also, it's also, um, you can get caught out, you know, no matter how much experience you have, you can get caught out. So I think it took, it certainly took me quite a while to lose the fear of, of building and the implications of it. But the excitement is, is amazing and the amount of energy you put into something is extraordinary and you're learning exponentially about the reality of, um, of construction. Um, Yvonne, your experience was, um, I think, less crude than mine. You, if, you're, if you're going to speak about the, gal- the little graphic studio gallery you made a piece of the carpenter center in someone's back garden, didn't you, on Clyde Road? No, oh, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh,
2: but <laughs> what's interesting is funny you should ask that, Nana. When I went for my walk this morning, for some reason, I don't know why it popped into my head, one of my early uh, projects, I think it was my first project. I used to get a bus out to the site, out in Selbridge, and my aunt and uncle very kindly gave me my first tiny project, uh, the first one. and. Um, uh, it was uh, they had this beautiful uh, house that was a, a cottage on the top and they built two floors down on the other side so you arrived in and there was two staircases down so there was living sleeping sleeping and then the river liffey so i put on a tiny room on the side but i convinced them that using tile on the floor that you wouldn't have skirting, which is completely ridiculous. Because what was happening was when they, they mopped the floor, you get the, the curve of the mop on the paintwork. And uh, I was thinking, like, I just have a floor and a wall. And I just remember, you know, they put in a coving tile afterwards because... Here was their niece, you know, okay, we let her off
1: with that. Yeah, and but Yvonne, uh, if Yvonne, if before that, you designed a piece of Maison de Verre and it came in six times over budget. You <laughs> oh, yeah, I'd forgotten that. <laughs> but the same project, which, <laughs> that's right, I
2: did a really beautiful Maison de Verre room, budget came in six times over, so I changed from glass block to concrete block. <laughs> 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 and yeah. they, yes, I'd forgotten about that. But the next one was a lovely—it was a, a a lovely project to do for a fantastic um, uh, uh, um, art uh, design company, uh, Brian Cronin and Associates. And he was a really terrific person, and he totally just trusted me as a as a young architect. And they were these beautiful uh, houses where they needed a new studio, and uh, uh, it was a so I brought the garden up and put the studio under underneath and I went to a lot of trouble to make the concrete fins as smooth concrete as possible. We used Formica as the as the shuttering. And they were so sharply done that they were actually under health and safety.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they were probably dangerous under health and safety. They were like razor blades.
2: They were I like was
3: razor blades. <laughs> I was really
1: delighted
2: that it was really good concrete and really beautifully finished. And then I came out a
1: few days later or something, and the painter had painted them all. <laughs> <laughs> this was supposed to be concrete, and it turned out that
2: they were representing uh, one of the uh, paint companies as well. So we just kind of, it was too late to take the, the paint off the, the concrete. So, Nana,
3: don't worry about um, <laughs> thinking will happen an answer <laughs> yeah, I, I think I it's really lovely to hear you both sharing stories about the kind of accidents on site and the kind of learning process on it and I really appreciate both of you talking really candidly about the the sort of jump actually between education and your first project and that that, that I think is something that perhaps isn't necessarily articulated to students because they end up at the end in England at the end of the five-year degree thinking right I know everything and I'm ready to go but actually that that translation there's a kind of two three-year period Mm -hmm. or even four or five Um, or about about five (laughs) or four A kind of yeah sort of a a fear of um, of starting out in in some ways and I think uh, articulating that from really Hearing that from really experienced architects who I hugely admire is that it's very comforting, but also um, helps you overcome that in some ways. I think it's slightly different. On uh, the problem, I I think uh, uh, Filippo
2: Sullivan presented a project we did out in UCD, and he was talking recently to our office. And there were forty-five drawings to make a building then for UCD, and now there's a, a kind of a different pressure. There's a kind of a contractual. Uh, difference you know the the sword of Damocles is slightly different I think uh, now that's that's I, I think there's a the contract has become slightly more onerous and kind of insurance and all those things that are kind of in the contemporary world which distance architects from the having a good chat with the with the builder and, mm-hmm. and kind of finding a, a, a kind of a way I think that must be harder now for yeah. your generation you know that insurance and contracts and the distance and the contractor being under a different time pressure Mm. Um, there must be differences uh, i think which your generation has to deal with in a in a different way Mm.
0: i think some things are very different all right but those feelings that you describe so beautifully hey they never go away i don't know i think they're kind of the meat and the the, the grist of it i was thinking there because i was really enjoying nana's question and your answer and then there's those experiences, but there's also architectural sensibilities which get buried in those projects. And you're just working them out at the time. You're doing the best you can at the time. And then, you know, your success has been remarkable. But so much of it is down to being ready for that jump to Bocconi. And by that, I mean, I look at the whole house and I look at that floor with the two col- the two beams spanning and the free corner or UCD. Uh, with those kind of uh, that amazing roofscape, that structural roofscape, and these were, they had big dreams. These projects, they had big ideas. Mm-hmm. Now, the, and the big idea didn't hurt the project. I'm not saying that at all. But that's not true for all architects. That you expect yeah. when somebody goes big, it's going to be different. But with you guys, it was just yeah. more of you, maybe. Um,
1: I mean, we were 25 years in practice before we did Bocconi and if you think of you guys and your generation and the kind of work you're doing and the experimentation that goes on at whatever scale we were doing exactly the same thing and actually we we did we were terrified because it took us ages to work it out and we couldn't work out the scale of it and we 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 felt it was too good a chance to to lose out on we really really wanted to do our best we it's not so much to win. I mean, of course, we wanted to win, but we really wanted to, to to do the best we possibly could. And I, I think that thing that you're saying about it, like we we were actually doing the Urban Institute in UCD when we got the phone call to do Bocconi, and we did use a similar crosshair kind of two directional structure, but at a completely different scale. And we did have some really good people in our office. And I I, even I often say that I never really realized how much teaching had taught us, just even in terms of running that competition, like, like running a studio, mm. um, to get the project out of ourselves and find a way of getting the right people to focus on the right things. That it, it, it really um, it really benefited us, the experience of teaching as well as the experience of building, uh, because we'd never had to organize one big project within the team of uh, I think it was twelve people uh, at the time, and um, yeah, we did. We just went for it, and we you know. But but that's one of the things that I find frustrating about the way that patrons or so-called patrons distribute work is that it's the chicken and egg situation. Because I think any, any practice, any good practice that has developed a body of work uh, at whatever scale over a period where you see the window being examined and interrogated and re-interrogated, how do you make a good window? You know, I mean, there's so many practices in Ireland, not just in Ireland, but because we're Irish, we're speaking about it. Um, you go to awards ceremonies, and sometimes you find the smallest project is the most sophisticated thing architecturally, uh, and it, it, just that development of a language, and really, always going back to first principles. It, it is a training. It is a training, and it is, and, and then you have to to sprint like mad when you're when you're when you're um, when, when your chance comes. Actually, um, Francesco Venezia the, was teaching in Mendrisio for some years, and there was an interview done with him uh, some time ago, and he was talking about um, how his biggest ambition was always to be ready, even when he had no work, for long periods of no work, to always be ready. We didn't actually think like that, but um, but I, I thought it was a fantastic, it's like an athlete always staying fit, you know, that you're always ready. You're ready to go because you don't know when the phone call comes. And that actually was a phone call. I mean, that was a miracle. It was um, Sylvia Mullese phoned us uh, on a Thursday afternoon uh, and said, you know, would you, like to be on a short list to do a competition for bocconi University in Milan which is forty five thousand square meters. I mean that was a phone call uh and it's never happened since, and we've never heard of bocconi university uh so i I mean there are some miracles in life where you you get a chance you get an opportunity uh and but it was hard. I mean, competitions are hard. You know. Um, yeah, we were lucky with the jury. We were lucky. Um, we we were lucky with our team. Uh, yeah, that was amazing. That was a kind of life changer. But I don't
2: think it was, I mean, just an answer to your question, it wasn't that we sat down, you know, uh, in, in 1978 and had a kind of a strategy and said, you no, know, by a certain time, we're going to have achieved that. I don't think life is actually like that. And I think that that's what we've been through. This is our fourth, uh, this is, well, this pandemic, that we've had three recessions and just... To give Nana heart uh, over, um, there have been times uh, when Shelley and I sat in a room and the, looking at the phone, waiting for it in those old phones that you lift up and dial, uh, waiting for it to ring and nothing happens. It, there, the, the architectural world is a very—it's—it's uh, um, uh, it's like a the sea. It comes in waves and it's linked so much to economics and to the building uh, uh, industry, and um, that. Uh, but because it's so valuable and because it's so important that, that, you, you, that you have to, if you like, uh, unless you're, you know, you have to be careful that you don't get yourself into, uh, into uh, economic difficulties because it's so variable, really. Yeah. You know what I mean? That, so there's, there's that. And I, going back to, to Andrew's question, I mean, I think that um, there's a, you, you sail a ship. And sometimes the the weather is fair, and sometimes it's a storm. And uh, I think that that uh, that it's. I'm sure that there are some offices around the world that have a you know of a whole department of strategy and kind of are, are uh, really you know uh, being playing a chess game. But uh, I think that the, that there's also that you live your life in the way that you are, and that that then uh, life can be generous as a result because you 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 it's not that you plot a course but that you that your life is is a consistent uh, thing uh, of of interest and then sometimes the 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 lines of opportunity happen uh, but it's uh, i think if you keep chasing a rainbow you could have a very sad life of loss uh, if you don't chart a course you just stay in the same port so the metaphors are very interesting but i think that um, the, uh, th- th- it also depends on, on what you call opportunity, because for some people making a beautiful wall and something that's about a meter long with a light in or something can be an amazing achievement. So I don't actually think it's scale. And when Shell was talking about Bocconi, I mean, as well as the Urban Institute, there was also a huge amount of work with Roland and Donovan building um Uh, bridges uh, 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 in this country when the roads were expanding and also building the project in in Trinity for the mechanical and manufacturing engineering with the big, uh, I remember Philippe having a one to 50 uh, plaster cast uh, um, model of one of the columns that it was quite a physical kind of a a change of to big structure and to bigger spans. There was a Kind of an interest in in, in that, and that um, uh, don't the, the the fire station relative to the time-wise. Chael, when was the presentation this morning for the thirty-meter span? That was, was twelve years ago. That was uh, that was um, eighty-two.
1: Was it twelve or thirteen years ago?
2: No, um, it's just interesting because Bicconi opened in two thousand and eight. Uh, it was the formal opening and. I think that what was amazing for us, as it as a project, was the, the the kind of spatial grandeur that it could actually achieve. You know, the you know the story that uh, the day it was open to the public was the first of November two thousand and eight, uh, and it was open to the general public to enjoy. And uh, when Shelley and I were there, uh, the, the the guy who had done the the photography of the building right through its construction said, "We'd like to meet the person who allowed us to look." from her apartment and and we went there. You might know this story already, uh, Andrew, but um, so we went up to her apartment and we said to her, would you like to see the building was open? She said, no, it was right outside her uh, apartment. And her family were there and we stayed a few minutes. And as we were leaving, the daughter said, no, she'll go with you. And she was a a woman we think it probably in her nineties. She came down with us and came into the building at, at ground level then down five meters to the next level, and then down nine meters below ground. And she said in Italian, uh, the, the structure is immense, but it embraces me. And that was exactly uh, an architectural response by a member of the general public. And it's one thing that does interest us is how architect communicates at a kind of a physical, uh, um, physical level, that's beyond language. That that it's in in a space with a certain thing, uh, that that affects you, and that was certainly a really important moment for us. That. Here was somebody whose who's life, she was waiting for windows to happen on the building across the road, and it's incredibly blank, you know, so she's looking at this 180 meters of ceppo outside her window, and she, she goes into this building and realizes that it's a vessel of light with an amazing structure. So they're the kind of moments, I think, and, and also when uh, when you talk about it uh, andrew we're very proud of a little sign that's on viale blini that describes the building uh, 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 and the architects like i think one of the things it's a pity historically that architects names used to be attributed to buildings more to say that people actually made them not to honor mm. necessarily that architect but i think one of the things that going back to our education you kind of thought that buildings came fully formed. Like somebody didn't tell you about the stork, you know, the baby arrives. Uh, I think that that's what we are now learning that it's a process, that it's a process of people being involved, a process of a builder, a contractor, a client, a dialogue. So I think the process uh, that where people get in.
1: But mm-hmm. it, was an, it was an amazing experience to be launched into that world that moved so fast. And I still remember, Yvonne, do you remember there was this whole hoo-ha about who the structural engineer would be? And um, uh, Bocconi appointed in consultation with us, not the competition team, but another team after we had finished. And we had this presentation probably only two or three weeks before we, after we won we had this consultation with, uh, with two engineers. I remember one of them was a round man from the middle of Italy somewhere. I can't remember his name, but he was a specialist in post-tension concrete. And he was looking at us with enormous suspicion and irony. And I remember we brought a shoebox of paper models, uh, which had different uh, um, options in terms of the structure. And we'd made them during the competition. And once we opened the shoebox and took out the models, that was it. We were, we were off. It was a fantastic relationship with the, with the engineers. And what's wonderful is that, um, that thing of being launched into another team of experts and consultants who are extraordinary at what they do. And, and we, found that, we found that whole experience really incredible, incredibly tough because they have no standard contract for architects in Italy. So the, the contract was written by the, by the Director of Buildings. And let's just say it was leaning on the side of Bocconi. Uh, and, and ranging from that to the, 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 the fact that this Director of Buildings found the best people for each of the best, for each of the both consultants, but also the contractors. It really was uh, a fantastic experience for us. <laughs> you know, Michelle, it was just before we put
2: in the competition, we had this uh, 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 cantilevered part of the Oula which is uh, uh, 22 meters. And we had it in the section. And it's very interesting. So I got, uh, there's two things I want to say. One is that we, uh, just before we put in the competition, we put two columns underneath it because we thought we can put a 22 meter cantilever. And the first thing that, that engi- one of those engineers uh, that Shelley is speaking of when, uh, when building the building, he took out the two columns because he said he'd be the laughing stock of Milan if he left those two columns. So we, we were delighted about that. But there was, um, there was something I was going to say uh, just about the, uh, the, the making of the space. When, the, when we were making the project, um, the 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 the, ana- the analysis of the site, the busy road, the quieter road. The, you, it's better not to come in the main entrance at the bigger road. Come down the side, and then because of that, we had we 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 delayed the entrance. Uh, and then you arrive and you drop down five. Uh, th- that was if like going back to the training that you were asking about, Andrew. These are all the things which are like uh, checking things out functionally or but they have a spatial impact and now when we still go back there and go down that from zero down to five and stand under the 22 meter cantilever it 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 is something we it's more than we imagined it's got something else and i think shelly and i had the same experience when we were down in lima when they'd just taken away all the scaffolding under the, the the kind of concrete carving we looked at one another, and it was better than we imagined. And I think that sometimes a project has an ingredient, which is either the way the daylight falls or the volume. No matter how many models you make or how many something or others, that you stand there and you go, it is a kind of a skin tingling kind of thing. Which, and going back to something maybe, and Anna, you're asking about. I think. That, architecture is a is a kind of a bodily thing but we intellectualize it Mm. and sometimes it's very beautifully intellectual but doesn't do something and then sometimes a thing is really lovely and you can't intellectualize it it's a strange kind of discipline because it's kind of childlike in its um, simplicity sometimes I still love standing under that 22 meter cantilever with the big eight meter high window and the city trundling by. But it kind of came about by a series of other decisions rather than us saying we'll have a window of that height and that. It came about by, by other judgments.
1: I think also what's, what's amazing is that sometimes when an idea is good, it's like a, it must be like a, a mining engineer finding a scene. And the seam leads to the gold or whatever it is. I I remember feeling that from very modest models and sketches, and then standing on site and watching these hundreds of people building this building, that you you're just a facilitator. It's like you start something and then it it it, it builds up its own momentum. And it, it reminded me of the way that traditional art musicians talk about being a vehicle for the music that you, that you're simply something, uh, a conductor or something of, uh, of, of of your, 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 your skill or your tradition or whatever. And, and it's much, much bigger than you are, you know, it's a, you start something off and if it's a, if, it, if it's a, a good grounding and has good basis, it, it really survives all the threats and all the traumas which it did have. Uh, uh, but, but also, it, it somehow develops its own energy. I find that amazing to be a part of at that scale.
3: Um, I want to tell something about that um, you came up in the conversation talking about kind of intellect and intuition. And I think there's something interesting about both of them in relation to emotion. And that both are derived, if they're good, they derive derive a powerful sense of emotion. And especially at Paconi, um, which I visited in my fifth year, that sense of emotion within the city's infrastructure, I think, is something that um I read in the in the in, in, in your work quite strongly. And the idea that Something I thought standing outside that university I thought this could be here for 400 years because it's infrastructural but it's also emotion it's emotive and hearing that wonderful story about the elderly lady saying that I think really sums that up really beautifully and I think I my question I guess is something to do with this kind of architecture's infrastructure but also remembering that it's got to be it's got to the body and remembering the body and somehow the body is also the measure for infrastructure that everything that we build in the world has to relate to the body and if it's to survive at least it it should and I wondered if we could tease out a bit this thing about the kind of um the kind of infrastructural element of of making architecture
1: Um, I I think what we discovered in Bocconi uh is that making something infrastructural or even let's call it heroic, and I'm not saying that in a self-congratulatory way, but that the the heroic or the monumental needs the intimate. If you have one without the other, um, it, it doesn't generate that emotion. And you could say that the sense of intimacy can also have a heroic quality and we're very interested in that the because people often say to us you know the way you talk about your work you know because people say we're brutalist and we're this that and the other um that uh you know that's not the way we're thinking but we're not afraid of of making something which has a strong presence if that's what it needs or making something which has a a modest presence, if that's what it needs. Um, But we're always conscious of of that sense of intimacy and um, of the the individual within the the group. Uh, And I think it's something we've become more and more um, convinced about. And and one of the things that I really enjoyed about um, when the Lima scaffolding came down and we were going around with the client And they were expecting I think 3,000 students or something Uh, and um, I said what do you think and he said and he said I'm very happy because each student will be able to find their own place here and I thought that was an amazing uh, comment by a businessman a mining engineer really not an educationalist but it's like the kind of thing an educationalist would say Mm -hmm. that you need a place where the individual, whether he or she is shy or retiring or extrovert or whatever, that there's a corner or a place for everybody. And um, I suppose it's, uh, it's well, it's, it's humanism, isn't it? It's that sense of hum- humanity, which, which again, working in Milan and looking at many of the buildings of Milan we felt that in some contemporary projects that that sense of humanity is absent actually. Mm -hmm. And that was a kind of, um, you know, we often think, well, why do we go to a building? And we really admire it, but really admire it. You know, everything is right, but it doesn't, it doesn't hit you and other projects, which might be very crude and unresolved get you in the stomach. And I, I think that thing of, of the agenda, of the, I know I've rabbited on about this quite a bit, but I remember actually really feeling it uh, in the work of Manjarati, especially in, in Milan, just that there was an intimacy, as well as um, in the little tower, not little, but it's a beautiful apartment tower. It had that intimacy, and it had this strong public civic presence. And, and that was normal for those architects at that time, because that was the socialist and humanist agenda. And our our world has changed since that time in terms of values or the values that are pushed upon us. Uh, and, and this probably the space for making architecture. I don't know about this, but maybe it's getting smaller. I don't know. Uh, you certainly find that the pressures are very very strong against some of the core values that we have Mm -hmm. Uh, I know James Sterling always talked about that 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 you you don't speak about ideas to clients or you don't speak about maybe the important things that probably always been the same but and it's a it's a kind of important line that we have to walk as architects is how do we stay true to our own vision of what architecture needs to do and at the same time navigate our way through a world which never thinks about these things
2: but the if I, the, when you talk about uh, intellect and intuition and emotion uh nana yeah. the one of the things i think that we try to uh, uh, liberate by building is that nature is not forgotten. And that I think that what happens in Baponi, uh, where we set up every 25 meters, 3.6, 25 meters, 3.6, these huge infrastructural things. But in fact, it's a series of raised courtyards so that the sunshine, that a, a building is like a sundial. So that the, uh, I remember being there one time and standing near the main entrance and because of shadow and sunshine you get natural vortexes so you get what we call the, the physics of culture the physics of the natural uh, natural convention and there was a a woman in a, in a kind of an orange silk dress standing there and you, you realize that people get a kind of uh, unbeknownst to uh, to herself, she's kind of attracted to that place because it's a hot day and the building is kind of gently taking care of her as a human being. So the, 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 we use the term the physics culture because I think that a lot of architecture obliterates the natural world and that the emotion, especially in these kind of COVID times, that one of the things that, that, that Shell often talks about is the kind of ability to to open a window or open and that to hear a blackbird sing outside that I do think that the emotional connection as we build, we often quote since 2008, I think, or it's more than kind of 50% of the world live in built environments, in urban environments. And that as architects, we, we could argue that that actually our role is to, is to hold uh, nature in a more kind of explicit way, so that the passing of the day, the passing of the season, uh, that, that the sense of warmth or comfort is kind of highlighted. And mm-hmm. I think that when you talk about, I think light, like in Bocconi, what's amazing, I remember being in, in a, a small project I've done here in Dublin uh, in for the Department of Finance, being in the staircase at a particular time of day and a shaft of light came down and I... I, I had never realized that the light would actually get there at that particular time. Um, and I think that, I think it's uh, it, when infrastructure, I remember we, we noticed that actually light dissolves structure being in Bacconi, say, and, and there's these big things, you know, like like huge aqueducts uh, up above, but then a shaft of light comes or the light and it's gone. It's like as if it's ephemeral. So I think it's, I think intellect's is uh, we're uh, incredibly privileged to be architects. It's an incredible profession. And it's a certain kind of spatial uh, um, to, to, to make, uh, to understand people's needs and then translate it into more than building, really what architects do. So then what do you give them? What, what extra do they get? And by staying in Bicone, the a thousand offices held up above, excuse me, <coughs> held nice. above excuse me, and the carved earth, Mm -hmm. then a new space is made in between. And the the beautiful uh, sketch of shells where the city is kind of flowing in between two worlds that are held apart, Mm -hmm. that kind of makes, uh, it's conceptual, but then it's unbelievably physical. And then the particular sun and wind and rain and whatever of the place kind of wraps up the building so I think it's, um, I think when we use terms like architectures and new geography or the physics of culture, they're kind of like bite-sized things that are more, I mean, in, you could say intuition is, is highly, highly, it's your body's intelligence. You know, it's maybe it's even, could be generational for all you know. It could be your great grandmother coming out saying, Nana, move that over there or something. You know, you, you don't know, you don't know what, what intuition is, but uh, it's something to, to listen to. You know, I remember when we were, Bacconi already had full planning permission for a building there, but they weren't a hundred percent happy with it. They wanted something else. And when we were doing the competition, we were roving around looking at it and that was nice, that was nice, that was nice. And then we moved the aula from down in the, uh, in the minus, uh, down in the basement, giving it expression and when we saw it, Shelley did this beautiful kind of collage with a kind of a piece of paper and stuck on, and it was really, but you realize that's, you know, that's saying something. It's, and and we, we often use a term that architecture is a silent language that speaks. It does say something and you don't know what it is, but it's, it's saying something other than I'm an office building in a boring side street. It's I'm, I am... A, representing, there's a symbolic um, component in architecture, which when you find it and it's it, it becomes a kind of a it, it's a it's a dialogue between a stranger. I, I remember having that feeling in Carlo Scarpa's building in, uh, in, in, uh, in Vicenza, no, not Vicenza, in Verona. No. Oh Yeah. yeah. Casabacchio. Casabacchio, where his language is so strong. Mm. Just it just communicates, and i I think that, um, that <clears throat> the, the same as the yeah, I mean I've never seen um the um yournudson's building uh, in, uh, in 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 uh, Sydney, but as Shelley talks about manjarati, we often speak about the, the seat outside can, uh, can lease in Majorca where where mm. he just makes you sit on this seat because it's just saying, Sit on me kind of this is a lovely place to be, mm. you know that That it is a dialogue.
0: What I think we're talking about is that you guys pay attention to the work. And and that's actually, unfortunately, quite rare within architecture at a certain level. I mean, I'm not being dismissive of the discipline. But what the conversation is about is always about the work and the nature of the ideas that it provokes in its building. You, you know, this conversation has been about the excitement of building. Also, the le- lessons learned from the work has constructed the kind of humanity of things. And I think that's why I was talking earlier on about some of the earlier projects. I didn't mean that you were tactically trying to be a big practice. I meant that the, the work had the germs of the ideas that you've been building on. You didn't have to change gear other than staff and resources, but intellectual gear, you didn't have to change for the bigger work. And what, what's interesting about that is that we're talking about this interesting balance between the intellectualizing of, of architecture and what it takes to make good work. And those two things are not always the same. In fact, the intellectual activity, while well, I love it. It can actually get in the way sometimes. It can actually stop you from seeing the thing with innocence, seeing it without prejudice and understanding what it wants to be and how it moves next. And the reason I'm saying all of this is that, I mean, you're formidable. I mean, what's wonderful about talking to the two of you is you're you're always deflecting praise, you know, justly to your team and to others. And it's wonderful. You're, You're probably the only architects who've ever won the Pritzker who didn't have a monograph about them beforehand and i think what that says to me is that i admire your ambition which is considerable and formidable but it's an ambition to make work it's not an ambition to be celebrated and again i am just going to point that out that's also quite rare in architecture you know it, that 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 those two things can get in the way of one another and i'm not really looking for a response because i know that the two of you will modestly Place the attention elsewhere. But I think it's interesting that you would have won that prize, say, two years after Doshi. And that this is there's there's lineage of this kind of generosity of thinking and architecture, and it does feel and maybe I'm being incorrect, but it does feel like the world is more and more receptive to them. That yes, it's been very difficult for the last number of decades, but perhaps, maybe these things are being understood now and certainly yeah. watching from afar, watching the conversations about your work and the excitement it provokes internationally is, it's very sincere. The way you talk about the subject is extraordinarily sincere and that shouldn't be worthy of remark, but it, it is worthy of remark because not everybody is sincere when they talk about architecture and it's, it's highly skilled, highly informed, it's, it's clear that it believes in the value of architecture and that architecture has a meaning. And what I find really remarkable about that is everywhere you've built, that's been completely understood and celebrated. And the work convinces. Do you know what I mean? The work is convincing people that there's another way to look at architecture. And I find that remarkable. Mm. Um, So it's just, I I don't know what that is. Is that a statement? It's one of those weird architecture questions that's more of a statement. Well, it's
1: nice.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you don't. It's nice on a Friday evening. Mm-hmm. I think um, I think this uh, thing that just came up of architecture and style and language that speaks is just I, I can't sum it up any better. Especially when we started the conversation talking about sense and space and that kind of moment of just working with light and then hearing you talk about Bacconi, it's it's incredible how this. I, I guess that's where I was starting the conversation. These very ideas that you grapple with, perhaps the students were starting out. That then find their way as a kind of lineage through the work and it strikes me now is that actually all that is more about the kind of human nature of making buildings and inhabiting buildings which I think goes to speak to the things that um are sort of yeah they're intimate they're the things that are learned but they're also just built upon through through a kind of series of 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 work and not sure again there's a question there but I just think that there's an interesting thing about these I guess there are lessons in architecture that are immediate and there are lessons that are, are longer lessons. And perhaps maybe there's a conversation there about what's been the kind of immediate lessons for you and the kind of longer lessons and how do you think they've manifested in the work?
1: I remember thinking that making a building is so difficult that if you don't somehow come, clo- come close to touching some emotive component, that it's not worth it. That actually it, it's, so, it's such hard work and there's so much stress. I don't mean to be going on about that, but mm. many of the projects that we made were extremely stressful and not terribly good. And then you think, well, why did I bother? Why do I bother? you know if you don't hit something some nerve you know it, it it's why, why do it and and certainly that changed my way of thinking and actually makes you in a way in a way it makes you more of a risk taker because you 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 want to you want to jump uh you want to jump a scale or you want to whatever um but it was a hunger that we, we, we were hungry to make work which had that other uh, component, mm-hmm. and it was a it was a thing we consciously spoke about it on. I remember it actually. It's in our first our first monograph. We do have the Grafton Architects monograph <laughs> by Gandon Editions. Don't forget that. And sorry, sorry, of
0: course Andrew. who can forget that international best seller, Shelley.
1: <laughs> and I think we, well, do, we really do, <laughs> do we do talk about that. Um, and actually it is it was kind of funny when we were teaching in the States for our students would say, I mean one of the things that we found really surprising is when we started teaching outside of Ireland, people actually seemed to think we were really good. <laughs> 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 that we had something special. And we were really surprised by this because we were just kind of doing what we always did. And this was the case in the States. And the students kept saying, where can I find out about your work? <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it, uh, yeah, it's, um, we should say, under that it's a strategy not to publish, but it wasn't. It's just, <laughs> we never, never got around to it.
3: Yeah.
2: It, it's, so, uh it's, um, I think that we make our living out of what we do mm-hmm. uh, you know that's you know that that's uh that that's an important component you know uh and that it's uh, um, it's i mean i i think going back to what the what the profession can do the the i i think that maybe uh um because not all disciplines are as inclusive or as culturally rich. As architecture, uh, that that maybe we need to jump up and down a bit more, and that mm-hmm. that's uh, that that we need to uh, claim more territory and 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 make it uh, legible to that that, that if you uh, you know if you build something too far away and the kids always have to be driven by a car, you unravel a weave that that we should be talking about. Uh, you know, infrastructure of water and infrastructure of roads, and we, we should be more vocal because we understand the weave of society. And if you have to get in a um, that, that things are connected, I think as a discipline, we are. It's it's a brilliant. Uh, it's it's both, as you said earlier on, Nana, It's a it's an intellectual and an into, uh, an emotional discipline, and and we're we're aware of. Time and construction. I remember hearing somebody uh, saying that uh, architects should be should be politicians because we don't have uh, just ideas. We actually come up with kind of concrete resolutions of them. You know that a lot of politicians are teachers or lawyers whose words are, are whose coinage is tends to be words. Whereas uh, in the architectural profession, it's it's a physical reality. So you go from concept to, to making something in a time frame, in a budget, in you know, a whatever. And that um, that just that we probably undervalue uh, the profession um, as being kind of, a, you know, some people would undervalue it and maybe we undervalue it sometimes within the profession that it's the kind of soft things. But in fact, it's, it's an incredibly complex discipline that enriches people's lives. If people do it well, it's fantastic. If they do it badly, it's a pain in the ass. and it's, it's, Sometimes it's, it's horrible. You know, you pass someplace and they're horrible. Yeah. And I think also that sometimes people don't judge something, you know, we often talk about Goldilocks, you know, like a, a, um, if something is, a, is it too hot or too cold or just right, finding the Goldilocks zone in, in every project it was scientists use it in outer space to find the Goldilocks zone, so everything's mm-hmm. kind of just right. Uh, I think in urban planning and in architecture, we should try and find the Goldilocks zone.
1: But, uh, Andrew, in relation to what you're talking about, um, the values in terms of uh, giving awards over the last number of years changing, I think that's a very hopeful uh comment, but um. Hopeful for for the next generations that 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 this will support architecture more. But actually, in fact, um, David Chipperfield gave a very interesting talk in Mendrisio recently as a head of, as editor of Domus, and he was making the case that architects have lost too much ground, and that uh, it's it's got to the point where the nature of practice has to change in order to get into a position of influence. And he was talking about the next generation of, of architects and how they are having to think about uh, ways of practicing architecture or perhaps the type of work they need to get involved in. Now, I didn't elaborate on it. I didn't, um, I don't know in detail what he means, but it was a very interesting critique on the loss of brand even, that you're talking about as architects due to our conservative nature as a profession. Because we're dependent on on patrons with money and with power, so nobody wants to ruffle the, the 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 packs too much, so to speak. but it is a very conservative profession in terms of people rowing in behind um, the support for architecture. I'm sure you find that uh, in your campaign, Andrew, which is a very necessary and laudable kind of campaign. Uh, and, and hopefully that will that would be cracked by, by by next generations of of, uh, of architecture. But I do think that thing of recognizing the the fact that that um, that architecture has lost so much ground and and how did we manage to do that? And how did we manage to get into a situation where we're signing the contracts that we sign? You know, which are so, um, uh, you know, they're so onerous and so unreasonable. And how did we as a profession get into this kind of situation? It's something that,
0: that really needs to be, to be addressed. I it does. I mean, it's an interesting one. Uh, Nana will know because I've bothered her with it. I'm trying to write something at the moment that tries to get to the bottom of some of this. And my feeling is actually that the nature of practice has already changed and because architecture practice changes with society, people say, oh, architects only design 10% of the built environment. And that's true, but it's the highest percentage it's ever been in human history and that there are more architects employed today in a wider diversity of roles than at any point in history either. And what that means is that we're making ordinary things. And when you're making ordinary things, it means your own agency is much more negotiated than if you're making the monuments. Mm. And I just think it's become a diffuse activity of multiple minor discrete improvements in back gardens and in houses and in offices and in shops and all over the place where the act of a conscious, the conscious act of an architect trying to come to terms with the world is making things slightly better. And... Mm. What we need to do now is to gather that into some kind of pluralistic cohesiveness. And yes, yeah. as you say, to speak back.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 just to drop into, into the bowl, into the um, when we were doing the Venice Biennale, um, a, a, a program was made called Nationwide uh, here in, in Ireland. And what was really interesting is that Nationwide does what it says on the tin it's uh, it's a program that's watched by the general public at just after kind of dinner time. It's a kind of a seven o'clock at night. It's a kind of a magazine kind of program. And what was uh, really interesting for us was to take the Biennale or the work that we do. And it was presented by the by the team, by the um, film team uh, to the general public. And I remember being really touched by one of the responses from somebody who lives here near me and who knows nothing about architecture in in, in a a deep sense, said that they never knew what architects did. And they were watching Shelley and I look at a little scratchy drawing about this size on a a piece of paper. And then seeing that as an idea transformed into uh, uh, UTEC in in Lima, in Peru. And I think we're extremely privileged. We're... Uh, we have, we've been educated, you know, as as architects, schools of architecture, these, it's a privileged uh, position to be in. And there is a thing of, of societal service. You know, we're unbelievably lucky to be alive and well and intelligent enough to understand complexity and understand that you could make a building that makes things a little bit better. And I was amazed at the the, the compliment to, uh, 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 to, to architecture that said, you know, from a scratchy little thing on a page, another reality is actually born. And I, I think that, that it's that ability of architects around the world to transform something and add another ingredient that was never imagined before or a modification of something that was ma- imagined before but changed likely. So I think it's, it's an amazing, it's, a, like, it's kind of a form of magic. You know and it's hard though it's you know you can sew the woman in half but you might she might be in half by the time you've done the magic
0: (laughs) well it's it's magic in the sense that what might appear effortless to the person experiencing it takes decades of of craft effectively to, to be able to make it seem effortless i mean that's that's that might be where the analogy really stands up we always close these interviews with one question and you may have already by the way answered it uh is what advice would you give somebody setting out to study architecture today? Can I yeah, not I mean, answer?
1: answer for... Can I not answer that question and just say something I was thinking about before you asked the question? Okay. Yes. Let's do um, that. <laughs> and it's partly to do with Nana describing the relationship between Ghana and Burkina Faso, and maybe it's something to do with magic, and maybe it's a reason to study architecture. Um, when Francis Carey was speaking on the same platform as Doctor Mandrup in Venice. Doctor Mandrup described Greenland and working, making her building in Greenland and the, the lack of daylight and the lack of sun and the darkness and, and the cold and all of this. And we were doing a summary and we said, um, Francis, would you like to say something? And he stood up and he said, I'm going to go back to my people and I'm going to tell them that I met a woman who lives in a place where there is no sunshine and I know what my people are going to say they're going to say to me take this little piece of our sunshine and bring it back to this woman and I thought that living in that kind of world is maybe the real place to be
0: yeah that's very nice very nice note to close on um, Nana Yvonne and Shelly, thank you so much Thank you for listening to this episode of Register. Do remember to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode, which will be out in about two weeks' time. In the meantime, and just before signing off, I'd just like to thank um, Matt Wells, Matt Phillips, Christoph Luder, and, of course, Laura Evans for all their work on various aspects of what we do in Register. Join us next time. Thank you now. Bye.